Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are walking through this chapter ever so slowly, and I don't, I don't think we could go any faster, to be honest, because of the dense richness with which we are being overrun and compelled by divine truth. And we come to a most important section today. We've been studying Ephesians, that's the work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ, and we are going to see the eternal gravity and weight of His person and His sacrifice in the passage before us. Specifically today, we'll be looking at another installment of our series called Life in the Light. This is part three. And today, walking with illuminated circumspection or perspective, as it were. Let me read the paragraphs so that we kind of have some context for our sermon today, and that's Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 3. But immorality or impurity, any impurity, or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person, or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk in the Lord, walk as children, light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. One of my historical heroes is Jonathan Edwards. He was introduced to me as a young man, um, oddly enough, by derision. I was in high school uh, literature class, and we were to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I remember reading that and being overwhelmed by it, coming back to class and having our teachers laugh at it. I became intrigued with Edwards as a teenager, especially about Edwards as a teenager. When Edwards was 17 years old, he began a list of commitments that he worked on for the next few years of principles by which he wanted to live. Each of these principles began with the word resolved. It was a commitment he made to himself before the Lord, and there were 70 of them. When you read through these commitments, you notice a pronounced accent on the concepts of death and judgment. When I read these and think that this was a 17-year-old pinning these words, it is it's overwhelmingly shocking. It's also remarkable to see how Edwards so clearly connects the lives we live with the eternities we will face with final judgment, with everlasting joy or everlasting judgment. Listen to some of these resolutions. Resolution number seven. 
Edwards writes, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. How different would our lives be if we lived like that? Number nine, resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. This is a 17-year-old committing to himself to think often of his mortality. Number 10, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and hell. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 50, resolved I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Number 51, Resolve that I will act so I will act so in every respect as I think I wish I will wish I had done if I should be damned. He actually thought, what if I were to end up in hell? What would I regret? I'm not going to do that. Number 52. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they had their lives to live over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I do live to an old age. And then resolution number 55. Resolved to endeavor to do my utmost, to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Paul brings us to that sobering reality in the passage before us. Again, Edwards lived his life with the awareness that the way he lived mattered. It touched eternity. As a citizen of heaven, it demands a certain lifestyle, certain values, certain fighting of sin. And as a citizen of hell, a future hell, you live in the full expression of your desires and lusts. The passage we're in this morning in verses 5 and 6 causes us to stop, to pause and to think, to consider the truth that the way we live reveals our eternal destiny. Think about that. The way that we live, the way we think, the values that we hold reveals our citizenship of the future heavenly kingdom or our future state of damnation. This is not to say that you work your way to heaven because you don't. But those citizens of heaven have the Holy Spirit who changes and empowers our life and our decisions and our our values and our thinking. It's simply to realize that those who are truly believers, who are citizens of the kingdom of God by faith in the gospel, live like it. And those who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness, who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, live like it as well. Now, just some perspective. This is a paragraph about walking in the light, living in the light, living as light, living as children of light. In verse 5, it's chapter 5, verse 3, he told us how to walk with illuminated, enlightened purity, sexual purity. And then the next verse, how to walk with illuminated decency in the way we talk and speak and joke. Today, we're going to be looking at walking with illuminated circumspection or perspective about life and eternity. Our next study, we'll look at walking with illuminated sanctification. 
lean hard into holiness that we're called to be and to do. And then lastly, in verses 11 to 14, walking with illuminated exposure. Our lives are actually God's flashlight on the world. For this morning, let's look at verses 5 and 6. Let me read those again. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In these two simple short verses, Paul reaches for the most powerful motivation for living out our identity as believers, and that is our our eternal destiny. Walter Layfield says this of Paul's message in these two verses, and I couldn't improve on his words. We are accustomed to various kinds of appeals preachers use to motivate people to be converted to Christ. But beyond the invitation to peace, a fulfilled life, the joy of salvation, and so forth, there is a starkly different kind of approach that one does not hear often anymore. And that is the threat of unending separation from God, of eternal loneliness, of blackest darkness forever, in short, of hell itself. This reality should, if declared in the proper manner, in the power of God, turn people to Christ, end quote. I I think he's right. These verses provide a very simple approach to understanding judgment and hell. It's basically understanding hell as getting and not getting. Something you get and something you don't get. It's not getting heaven, that's verse 5, and it is receiving God's wrath, that's verse 6. It's a very simple overview and outline of what eternal judgment actually is. Not getting heaven and receiving God's wrath. So we're going to break this down, passage down in those simple points. Two eternally tragic certainties for Unbelievers, And we know it's unbelievers because in verse 5, they forfeit the, the, the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. And in verse 6, they receive God's wrath. So these are unbelievers. Two eternally tragic certainties for unbelievers. The first is in verse 5, forfeiting God's kingdom. Forfeiting God's kingdom. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. First thing I want you to notice is there's a parallel between the way verse 5 starts and the way verse 6 starts, and they're saying similar things. Verse 5 begins, I want you to know for certain. I want you to know this with certainty. Verse 6 starts, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be lied to. Don't believe a lie. Know for sure. There is nothing to know for sure that's more important than whether you're going to heaven or hell. In other words, these two realities described in these verses are things that Paul wants to anchor in our hearts with certainty and to not be deceived about, to not be lied to about, to not believe a lie about. Why are such words worthy of 
such introductions because he's describing the judgment of unbelievers in eternal damnation, eternal hell. Paul's warning the Ephesian believers that they should resist the ever-present temptations that reside in all of us in our flesh or we will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. Look carefully at the list here Paul provides, and they should sound familiar. He says in verse 5, you know for certain that no immoral, impure person, or covetous man. Does that remind you of verse 3? But immorality, same Greek word. Impurity, same Greek word, different form. And greed, same Greek word, different form must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Saints don't live in the ongoing pursuit and expression of these sins. That's what it says. That's what he's saying. So now he comes back to that and says, remember those three sins I just talked to you about two verses ago? It's worse than you thought. No immoral person. What does that mean? Porneia, no person of Pornea, we looked strongly at that. It means any sexual thought or any sexual activity with anyone. And we have to say this in our day, anything, a screen, a computer, a phone, any sexual thought or any activity with anyone or anything outside of marriage. That's what pornea is. It's thought and deed as Jesus taught us. Oh, we can say you should not... We've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, that's true, but let me go one step deeper. How you think in your heart about the opposite sex is critical. Porneia is any expression of sexual desire or sin outside of marriage. It's intended, that intimacy is intended to be in marriage and between a man and a woman in, in marriage alone. We looked extensively at that in verse 3. Or impure person. Remember, that word is pretty expressive. It means fornication or adultery. Someone who is ceremonially unclean because they've committed sexual activity. Jesus took that to the heart level as well. Adultery and or fornication. In other words, any kind of sexual thought or sexual activity with anyone who's not your spouse. And then he says, or covetous person. And this is the idea of wanting something that's not yours. Expressing sexual desire in thought or sexual sin with someone who's not yet your spouse or doing that with someone who is not your spouse once you are married. But then he adds this little, little, little footnote. Who is an idolater? What is that? Listen to what Colossians 3, 5 says about this. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, here's our words again, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What is idolatry? Oh, sure, it's finding a carved stone or a carved uh, piece of wood something that's made out of metal and bowing down before it as if it is your God. That is idolatry. It is condemned over and over in the Old Testament. But Ezekiel and Jeremiah says that there's, there's an idolatry that goes deeper than that. It's idols in your heart, things that you are worshiping instead of God that are in your heart as desires to satisfy you in ways that only God can. 
So what is an idol? Let me, let me make it as simple as I can. This is helpful for my own heart. Idolatry is simply this. Anything that tempts you to sin in order to get it, in order to experience it, or anything that you will sin if you don't get it or you don't experience it. That's an idol. Anything that tempts you to sin in order to get it or experience it, or anything that tempts you to sin if you don't get it or you don't experience it. That kind of changes the rules on idolatry in our heart, doesn't it? We all have idols that we worship, that we think, if I don't get this, it's dissatisfying. I will sin in my heart with anger, frustration, impatience, or I will compromise and sin in order to enjoy or get this. That's idolatry. It's putting something in the place of satisfaction in our hearts, in our leanings instead of God. Very simple. Now, I say that, but let me just say this. It's an important footnote. Paul is not suggesting that a believer might not ever fall into one of these sins. There's a difference between falling and staying on the ground. He's not talking about perfection here, but progression. The characteristics of your life. Any of us can fall, all of us stumble in all of these ways in certain times. The question he's raising is, does this characterize your life? So these idolaters <laughs> through sexual immorality, he says, none of these has an inheritance. Interesting phrase, has an inheritance. This should be familiar to you. You can look back over chapter 1. He's already discussed this. The Holy Spirit, verse 14, chapter 1, is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This is like when you, when you purchase a house. Kim and I have purchased a few houses, and the first thing you do is you give them earnest money. It's, it's the guarantee that you're going to follow through. God gave us a guarantee in giving us His Spirit and that's the proof that this is just the, the experience with him through his spirit in a sinful world where we're walking by faith and not sight. But one day it will be sight and we'll have the fullness of our experience with God in heaven. But we do have a pledge for our inheritance that will happen one day. Then verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, illuminated, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance with the saints. I'm praying that you will actually live your life believing that heaven is real, that you're going there, and that motivates you in how you live now. So similar to Edward's thoughts and his resolutions. It's the expectation of future reward and realized relationship with Christ in heaven. And it's contrasted with those who will inherit wrath and judgment. In verse 6, has an inheritance. Look at this next phrase, very interesting. In the kingdom of Christ and God. The kingdom of God is a significant theme in the New Testament, and it was one of the main tips of the spear that Jesus was preaching during his three-year ministry. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it might interest you to know, is mentioned in 65 verses. 65 verses, and the kingdom associated with Christ himself occurs in at least 10 more verses. But if you're 
reading carefully, I hope it got your attention. He says, the kingdom of Christ and of God. This in Ephesians 5, 6, calling heaven the kingdom of Christ and God, calling our relationship with him the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the only place in the New Testament where those two come together. Right here in our, in our, in our view. Why is that? Jesus says, my kingdom is at hand. I think that the kingdom of Christ relates to the already dimension of our relationship with him. We know the king. We believe the king. He's our savior. We have a relationship with him in the already realized relationship that we have through the gospel. But there's a not yet part of the kingdom of God too, and it's in the future. And that's the kingdom of God. So I love the fact that this covers both dimensions. Our current experience with Christ, who will not leave us or forsake us, who promised that he would always be with us even to the end of the age. We have an experience with him now, but there is a dimension of the kingdom that is unrealized and yet futuristic. In a thousand-year millennial reign as well as eternity with him. But this inheritance of the kingdom of God is a significant theme and a motivator for a believer's behavior and identification of an unbeliever's behavior in Paul's writings. Listen to very familiar words from Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, (laughs) this sounds very familiar, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's not a complete list. Things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who, here's the word, practice, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're living as heirs of disobedience, sons of disobedience. They're living according to their master, the devil himself. Their values are not kingdom values. You know 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as well. This, this contains one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, and I really mean that. And it's all based on a verb tense. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous, unbelievers, will not inherit the kingdom of God, the celestial city, the one day faith becoming sight with him in heaven? Do not be deceived. We'll come back to that in verse 6. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the verse. And such, past tense, were, were some of you. Some of you used to be like this. And you know what's significant? You're not anymore. But you were washed. You were made holy, sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You are going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
As I said, there are two main dimensions of God's kingdom, the now and the future. We call it the already and the not yet. You may ask, in what sense am I already in the kingdom of God? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13, for God rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us, past tense, not future, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those who have been washed, those who have believed the gospel, are current residents of Christ's kingdom. You're a fellow citizen. And just as when I go to a foreign country, I have a passport that identifies me as a citizen of this country, you have a passport for the kingdom of God. Here the accent is on those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. He's talking about those who didn't repent, those who stayed in the practice, the ongoing love and pursuit of these sins that was evident of a life not saved by God. This is a warning and it's severe. Those who live lives characterized by immorality, impurity, and greed are not kingdom citizens. They're not true believers, even if they claim to be. Paul is calling citizens of Christ and God's kingdom to live with kingdom values. That was the substance of Jesus' entire sermon. The longest sermon we have recorded of him is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the entire basis of that sermon is these, this, this describes citizens of my kingdom. Now and in the future, you should begin living with those values and understanding those values and applying those values. Clint Arnold summarizes like this. He knows, Paul knows, that believers can and do engage in impure behaviors. But the point of this entire passage is that evil attitudes and evil conduct should be rooted out and eliminated, end quote. So again, the question is not, have I ever been immoral or impure or, or, or greedy or covetous or I had idolatry in my heart? Y yes, you have. If, if not in deed, in heart, Jesus says so. The question is, does that characterize the direction of your life, the pursuits of our lives? Wow, an unbeliever will forfeit living with the king in this life and living in his kingdom in the next. Second, eternally tragic certainty for unbelievers, forfeiting God's kingdom, verse 5, now in verse 6, receiving God's wrath. Verse 5 is what you don't get if you're an unbeliever. Verse 6 is what you do get and what you receive as an unbeliever. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul starts out by saying, don't be lied to, don't believe the lie, don't be deceived. What is he talking about here? Very simply this. It is the lie that the way you live your life now has nothing to do with eternity. That's the lie. Paul wants us not to fall for the lie that most believers live by, 
that you can live however you feel like, however you want, and that such living has no consequences in this life or the next. Paul says, don't be deceived. Life matters. Not to work ourselves to heaven, but life matters because it reflects our eternal values and whether we are children of the king or children of the devil. That parallel, again, between verses 5 and 6, know this for certain. Don't be deceived about this. Why? It is eternally significant, eternally important. Heaven and hell are in the balance with how we understand this. The phrase, these things, is specifically looking at the sexual sins mentioned in verse 3 and in verse 5. But I think it also extends all the way back to chapter 4, verse 17, because that's where this section launched. So I say this together and affirm with the Lord, that you walk, live no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice, there it is, the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. See the connection? But you do not learn Christ in this way, he says next. These things, characteristics of an unbeliever's life that are practiced and pursued, loved and cherished, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. That should run chills up your spine. We were introduced by this already. If you remember when we were in chapter 2, I said, Mark, put a place marker here because we're going to come back. We're coming back. Go back to chapter 2 and let's remember. Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived, walked, formerly. Look at the past tense of that. This was your old life. You formerly used to walk, live according to the course of this world. You used to live according to the prince of the power of the air. You used to live according to the spirit that is now working in the Sons of disobedience. That's our phrase. We'll come back to that in a moment. Among them too, we all, formerly, we used to, we've changed. We used to live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice that this was the nature and the pursuit and the lifestyle, not the the falling into sin that every believer does. Sons of disobedience. We see that in chapter 2. We see that here in verse 6 of chapter 5. Sons of disobedience. It's an interesting. Why would he say sons of disobedience? Like disobedience is your dad or your mom or both? No. The whole context here is inheritance. You inherit the kingdom of God because God is your father. You inherit wrath because disobedience and the devil are your spiritual fathers. Harold Honer, who's guided me so much through Ephesians, you'll hear his name many times again. I'm going to confess that. He says this, disobedience, sons of disobedience, has the idea of unbelief. And he gives a list of texts where that's the case. Romans 11, 30 and 32, Hebrews 4. 
This idea fits well in the present context because these people do not believe that God judges and consequently they try to persuade all people of this, including believers. There's the lie. That is why Paul warns believers not to believe their words which are void of content. Rather, they are to believe the truth which is in Jesus. Don't believe the lie. Don't be deceived. Go back up to chapter 4, verse 20. You do not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth, truth, truth is where? In Jesus. That in reference, what truth about what? Here's the truth. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the same message Paul is giving here. The truth of Jesus keeps you from lying, believing the lie that you don't have to change if Christ invades your life. Oh, there are certainly present consequences of God's wrath, sexually transmitted diseases, jail time for convicted crimes, etc. But there will be a final expression of God's wrath that is terrifying, and this is, this is eternal hell. This is eternal judgment in hell. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Wait for His Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Who goes to hell? You ever ask that question? Who goes to hell? We find out exactly who goes to hell in Revelation 21 in contrast to those who go to heaven. Verse 7, Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things after description of heaven. And I will be his God, he will be my son, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers, and here's our word, immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's not only dying physically, that's dying eternally. The doctrine of hell is perhaps the most unpopular discussion or doctrine. Most disbelieve that hell exists. And those who do take it seriously have very unbiblical ideas about it. For example, there's an expectation that others might end up there, but little expectation that they themselves are on a highway to hell. We'll study eternal judgment in another time, but just know this for now. Hell is full of everything we dread. Physical pain, loneliness, darkness which accentuates fear, regret, and the absence of another chance. But John 3.18 says, He who believes in Him, Jesus, is not judged. What's a simple takeaway of this? Sometimes I give you three, four, five, seven <laughs> takeaways. This one's pretty simple. Be certain about the coming judgment and be prepared. Pretty clear, isn't it? Be certain. Don't be deceived about it. Be certain about the coming judgment and be prepared. 
That means believing the good news of the gospel, that God will save you from certain, certain and unavoidable judgment if you die without your faith in him. There is a heaven to be gained by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a hell to be rightfully earned by rejecting the good news of the gospel. For Paul, preparation includes resisting the lie that God's judgment is far away, if real at all. John Calvin said this, a little bumpy, but follow it with me. In all ages, indeed, Satan employs sorcerers like this in Ephesians 5, who by unholy scoffs run away from God's judgment and who lull as if with a charm, consciences not grounded in the fear of God. This is a trivial fault, they say. Fornication is a mere game to God. Under the law of grace, God is not so cruel. He has not formed us to be our own executioners. We die by our sins. The frailty of nature excuse us, end quote. Distinguishing God's truth from the world's lies is at the heart of Christian thinking, which fuels Christian living. Are you a citizen of the king of the kingdom because you know the king? Do you believe the gospel? Is your life characterized by the values that he's given us? Or are you chasing, even if secretly, passions that are antithetical to his nature? Edwards can help us once more. Remember Resolution 55? Resolved to endure to my utmost to act as I think, as I can think I should, if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Hell.